backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. That's Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio as we broadcast in a split screen edition from the National Press Club. Joining me here in studio is our former Undersecretary of Commerce who, rep- who worked for at least at last count four presidents. He is a longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider. He is Alan Moore. Alan, welcome back to the studio. Hey, welcome back to Washington. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be home. Uh, of course, I'm your moderator, Jason Russell. Joining us in a split-screen edition from somewhere in the northern hinterlands of Virginia, he is the retired one-star general from your United States Navy. He is a man we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you, sir? Admiral Ken? We have a mic problem, apparently. Apparently, we have a mic problem. No, we have a sound problem. Stand by, folks. Getting used to the new uh, digs here. Stand by. Should somebody whistle while we wait? Mm Mm-hmm. Good afternoon. There we go. You know what? I love doing live remote broadcasts from the National Press Club. They are always impressive. This is Backroom Politics Live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. For those of you who didn't hear what we started with before, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me here in the studio is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who is rep- who has worked for at last count four presidents. Long-time Senate staffer, long-time Washington Insider. He's Alan Moore. Alan, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm good, Justin. Uh, we're back online. Uh, joining us in a split-screen edition from somewhere in the hinterlands of the uh, of the District of Columbia. He is the uh, former Joe Biden political operative and bar-certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and Washington District of Columbia. He is the man we know as Dan Littner Esquire. Daniel, how are you? I am doing well. How's everyone doing? Everybody's doing fine. And joining us from New York City, she is the former legal counsel to the Hillary Clinton campaign for president in 2016. She is uh, the attorney that we know as Sharmila Chari. Hey, Sharmila. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thanks for joining us. Somewhere out there is Admiral Ken Carradine and hopefully he will join us shortly but short of that happening let's get started we got a lot to talk about obviously there's breaking news coming out of Washington for those of you who have not heard Uh, the GOP health care bill is now dead Uh, Senate leadership this afternoon came in front of TV cameras at the Capitol and announced that, unfortunately, they just don't have the votes after it came out that Senator John McCain of Arizona, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, and Senator Susan Collins of Maine, all three Republicans, all three needed yes votes to have this go forward, apparently said they want no part of this. Uh, Let me start with Alan Moore. How surprising is this to you that after the now – 
third or fourth go-around, hell, some are even saying this is the seventh go-around, they still could not get this done. How surprised are you? I'm not surprised at all. Why? <laughs> because back when we did round one uh, a few months ago and came up uh, uh, a vote short of passing a bill by a simple majority out of the Senate that about eight or nine other Republicans said they did not want to become law because it was imperfect, but they hoped that they would be able to work something more acceptable out with the House, um, failed. And at the time, I said, I think that this may have been a favor to Republicans because I couldn't see a pathway for them on the policy all by themselves to come up with something that would work, that would get the votes, and that would not do a lot of, of, of harm to individuals and political harm to the party. I thought it was over. Um, and when uh, Lindsey Graham and, 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 and the Dr. Bill Cassidy decided to make another run at it with a little different approach of turning a lot of money and authority over to states, I thought, this is Groundhog Day. This is, this is doing the same thing over again, but with a lot of the same problems and criticisms, even, the, even though the details uh, are rather different and the implications are a lot harder to predict because you have to predict the behavior of 50 different states, um, the fact that they were going to be spending a lot less money over the next few years would guarantee that there would be significant numbers of people who would have to be counted as uninsured who might otherwise be insured. Stand so, oh, I wasn't, so, so for me, I was kind of surprised that it got this far. Um, I was sort of surprised it got as far as it did the last time. So for me, it was deja vu all over again. Dan Lintner, you surprised by the fact that, uh, one, the GOP could not do it again, and were you surprised by the senators who said no? Uh, well, I think he left a couple people off the list of who said no. Uh, Lisa Murkowski was also a consistently said she was going to have trouble voting for it. But a new name got added to the list that kind of caught me off guard, and that was Ted Cruz, uh, which uh, was an odd name to be talked about for saying he he, he wasn't he, he couldn't vote for it. At least he had hinted that he couldn't vote for it. Uh, so. Yeah, this was not a great bill. Um, I did watch uh, last night the uh, Senator Cassidy and Senator Graham talk about uh, th their legislation on CNN last night, and it, it was remarkable for how little detail there was on the solution. They, talking about the problem was great. To some extent, all four senators on the stage agreed to the problem, and then came the the snake oil that Senator Cassidy kept throwing out there was, well, the states will do better because they're states and they do better with absolutely no evidence to support that. So at an actual policy level, there's no reason to believe that this should have passed to go forward other than Republicans said, as Senator Grassley said, there are 10 reasons I can think of off the top of my head not to vote for this, but we said we were going to repeal Obamacare, so therefore we're going to do this. That's sound reasoning. Now, just for clarification, uh, Dan Lipner, the uh, senator from Alaska, Senator Lisa Murkowski, never came out and officially said no vote 
on this round, uh, just as Ted Cruz never officially came out and said no vote on this, both citing they were leaning towards no but had not made a final decision. But it appears now that that point is moot after uh, the Republican leadership tried whipping that vote. Charlotte uh, Akari, let me ask you, is this some sort of vindication for the American or the Affordable Care Act and the Obama legacy? Well, first of all, to echo Ellen's point from earlier, what's that, what's that, that they say about the definition of an insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting the same result? I think it's less a vindication of the Affordable Care Act as it is just the American public and senators, to their credit, refusing to accept these GOP senators lapdash and behind-closed-doors efforts to repeal existing health care law. The, right, the Grand Cassidy bill suffered the same flaws from a procedural standpoint as the American Health Care Act, which was they were, it was done without zero, with zero Democratic input, without waiting for a CBO score, without any real explanation of what the policy changes were other than cuts in Medicaid expansion and state block grants. So I think that this, I think that the continued popular unhappiness with the GOP repeal efforts reflects less on the popularity of Obamacare and just real dissatisfaction with the Republican process for creating these, these repeal bills. I think that Senator John McCain said it very well when he said this, a matter of this import really requires bipartisan input and it requires a bipartisan process. The Republicans oh, haven't no. done that so far. And I think that when they do, if they do, that's the only way that they can really produce the result that they're looking for. Alan Moore, you would think that after John McCain came out and said, look, we have to go to regular order on this, that at least some of this party would listen to that advice. Why is Mitch McConnell and the Republican leadership in the Senate afraid of bringing this to regular order? Which And would it change anything is the other question. Well, so the Republicans over the last seven years dug a deeper and deeper hole for themselves as many Republicans in running for office uh, or going back home committed themselves to repealing. Uh, initially it was repeal, and then it, was, it became repeal and replace uh, Obamacare um, uh, without ever doing a lot of hard work figuring out what the replacement might look like. Now, that doesn't mean that there was no work done. There was an enormous amount of work done, but they couldn't get everybody together um, because the issues are too complicated and the impacts vary too much from state to state. So it, it, it was going to be well nigh impossible on the merits to get all Republicans into the same tent. Unfortunately, and, and some of us, I don't, you know, some, 
Some of us guessed that. Some of us saw that coming. That doesn't mean we're brilliant. It probably means that we live in this weird little bubble of Washington. We understand how hard it is to do stuff. One person who did not understand that was President Trump, who enjoys saying even in in recent days that he thought on day one of his presidency he would have a bill to sign that was repeal and replace. So that simple statement speaks to his ignorance. Hold that that thought. We're off it. We went off air here. (laughs) Folks, stand by. I'm going to disconnect. We went off air. Hold on. And we are back here live. Uh, Dan, we got we got the whistling. Nice job. We're back here live. Thanks for helping us deal with some technical issues here at the National Press Club. They're going through a real modernization, and unfortunately part of that modernization is taking a toll on the Internet capabilities here at the club. But they are fixing it, so that's good news. Let's go back to our discussion, though. Uh, uh, number one, let me go back to uh, Alan Moore. Alan, we were talking before we had the little technical hiccup there that the, the situation with going back to regular order, you're saying it really didn't have an effect on possibly the outcome or did it? Well, so I think that 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 Republicans having gotten themselves out on this branch saying they were going to repeal and replace and having an unusual opportunity in, under Senate rules to legislate um, not not without limitation but, but legislate in some important ways with just 50 votes concluded that their best chance of success given the commitments that so many had made, would be to use this particular mechanism. It's in the budget. It's part of the budget process. It's called reconciliation. It's complicated. It's limited. It's real. And they thought they could do that. They couldn't do that the first time. The differences were too wide. They couldn't afford to lose more than two Republicans. And they came closer than I thought they would get. But as I just said earlier, I think that that they were still doomed um, in coming together on an actual bill. Um, they tried it again. Why did they try it again? Because they were going back home and hearing from conservative constituents, conservative supporters, conservative donors, conservative media, that they were failures and they have and liars and that they'd made all these commitments all this time and they needed to go back and do it. It wasn't about the merits. The merits 
are not understood by most Americans unless you're people at the margin who feel at great risk. Um, and, and, and so it, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a credible pathway in my judgment um, to get there from here, well, me, but they felt question, politically that they needed to make another let, run. Let me ask you this question. Was this even viable politically? I mean, it, it appears to me that from polling that I've read, from talking to people on the Hill, that nobody will come out and say it, but a large part of Americans don't necessarily disagree with the Affordable Care Act in the way it is right now. I would argue that most Americans don't know that much about the Affordable Care Act and all of its many dimensions unless they are beneficiaries of a particular piece. If they're existing conditions, one of them. Pre-existing conditions, first and foremost, because you had thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across America who could not buy any kind of decent coverage at an affordable cost because insurance companies had no duty or responsibility to make it available. And their only hope in case of being really sick was to go to an emergency room and take their chances. That's a a very expensive and not particularly effective way to uh, deal with high-cost emergency-type care. So people with a pre-existing condition, and there were many of them, and their loved ones and their friends and their neighbors – thought this was massive and huge, and it was. And, and the problem with trying to change that, as expensive as it is, as inefficient as it is, um, uh, it, it was going to be very chancy. Then you had the mandates, which were controversial. People, individuals required to buy or pay a penalty. Companies required to buy or pay a penalty starting next year. So there was un- unpopular aspects along with annual big increases. So there were plenty of problems out there. The problem is the best the way that Democrats want to fix them is push more money into that system. But let me, let me ask this question. Dan Lipner, do you no, think well, that regular order would change the way the system well, out? Well, a, a couple of things, and I want to backtrack first, because one of the things that what Alan was talking about also leaves off the seven years of political rhetoric that were coming from the Republican Party that, and I think Alan is correct in saying the president didn't understand anything about the legislation. However, he was in essence parroting exactly what Republican leadership have been saying its response was to Obamacare, that their alternative was going to cover more people, be cheaper and easier, and everything was going to be wonderful and great. And that's what President Trump essentially had been saying, lo and behold, you have the details that exactly as Alan said, the pre-existing conditions are expensive. Making sure that there's no lifetime cap on coverage is also very expensive. If you have ever had a, a loved one who's had a serious medical condition, those prices add up pretty quickly. So a quarter million dollars here or there for somebody who's had a quadruple bypass or had serious cancer treatment, those things add up quickly. So those lifetime, those lifetime caps being removed meant something, and it also means you need to distribute the cost. When 
Speaker Ryan said you can't possibly have a system where healthy people pay for sick people is a fundamental misunderstanding of how insurance works. You don't just have insurance for houses that burn down. The people whose houses don't burn down pay for those who do. That's what it is. Um, but that's not the bill of goods that were sold to the, the, the vocal minority that are both the Trump supporters and the, the constituents and, more importantly, donors back in the districts where Republicans are filling the heat. So regular order would have been a completely different beast um, than what we're seeing for the Republican repeal for Obamacare. And, and to be clear, Obamacare has flaws that need to be fixed, but none of that was addressed in either or, either or any of the, Republican, the latest Republican incarnations of their repeal. But, Sean, would the Democrats have come to the table with an open mind had they gone with Senator McCain's concept of regular order? Are, are the Democrats willing to deal on keeping the Affordable Care Act alive or to come up with some sort of compromise? I think they are, but I think that they would have important deal breakers that they wouldn't cross the line for defunding Planned Parenthood being one of them, um, elimination for protection of pre-existing conditions being another, uh, lifetime cap, as Dan, as Dan mentioned, being a third. I can think of several, several other areas where I think the Democrats wouldn't budge, but, but from the perspective of, as Dan said, Increasing the number of uh, people covered and potentially reducing premiums, I certainly think that they would have come to the table. I believe there is something percolating through regular order. I mean, it's worth noting. I believe Lamar Alexander and uh, uh, the senator from Minnesota, whose name is escaping me, are Amy Klobuchar. Klobuchar. No, no, Patty Murray Uh, is working with with Alexander from, from Washington State. So. Let me ask this question, Alan Moore. When we hear the Republicans saying, look, I have to go back to my constituents, I have to go back to my districts and explain, him why, and explain to them why we have not repealed this abomination that we call Obamacare, are they selling the American public a line when they say that? Because it sounds to me that a lot of Americans, like you had said earlier, aren't even educated enough about the programs to speak intelligently to it, let alone know the inherent details of the programs. Are they, in fact, selling us a, a bill of goods? Well, here, here's the thing. Um, there's plenty of dishonesty on both sides, okay? And some of it's grown out of ignorance. Some of it's grown out of politics. We cannot afford... Uh, uh, Obamacare as it now stands or to fill in financially all that it needs. It's billions and billions of new dollars without any changes. At the same time, the Republican proposals um, tended to have a heavy emphasis on trying to reduce costs over time without in their minds, doing massive damage to uh, health insurance coverage. Unfortunately, 
all the analyses, particularly from the Congressional Budget Office, whose analysis is the one that matters the most, but there are plenty of other independent analyses, showed uh, that in 20 to, to 30 million fewer people were likely to be insured under the early version of what the, the Republicans were proposing. We never got the numbers for the new version. It's interesting to me how <laughs> I think the legitimate complaint about the new proposal is we don't have any analyses. How can we move forward? But then they would begin to talk in great detail about all the damage that was going to be done. Now, that information may, have, may or may not turn out to be true. There was going to be plenty of damage, no question. What was One of the big things that, that the new proposal did um, was take all the Medicaid money, and remember, some states expanded, some states didn't. Most of the states that expanded are red states and large states, California and New York. So right now you've got hugely different amounts of money going to the big states that expanded on a per capita basis than to some of the other states, including a lot of blue states, that chose not to expand. And what, what the Graham-Cassidy bill would have done, it was to take all that pool, divvy it up on a per capita basis, therefore having the effect of taking money away from the New Yorks and Californias of the world and turning around and giving it to Wyoming, Montana, of, and Alaska. Of, of blue states, including in the southeast, and that, that, that chose not to expand. This, <laughs> there were winners and losers under this proposal, and they were going to turn a lot of authority over to the states. It turned out very few states when you when push came to shove, really wanted that authority. Well, when, does the president all fifty state Medicaid, Medicare uh, directors said no. Medicaid, Medicaid, correct. Medicaid, sorry. Not, but all but all the governors didn't. It, 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 anyway, all I'm saying is most states were, and, and the Medicaid guys are like, oh my God, we got enough trouble. We don't need a whole bunch of new uh, duties and responsibilities. We don't want to be blamed. Sherwood, does the president have any blame in this, not moving forward now for the third time during his presidency? Well, I think that depends who who's leveling the blame. Certainly, if I was a conservative donor who wanted this law replaced, I would certainly place a lot of blame on him. I, I don't even know where to start with that question. The, at the most basic level, his fundamental ignorance of any of the details or really any details of healthcare policy generally. And then his bizarre obsession with picking fights and feuds and using explosive rhetoric versus actually talking about why this bill would benefit voters and why it's better than, than its predecessor. I think that, and then you can even go to his, his idea of whipping votes being just bullying senators and either trying to outright extort them or then turning around and trying to bribe them. So, Dan Lipner? you know, so, yeah, I mean, uh, President Trump has obviously offered nothing useful to this debate, uh, but how much additional harm he's done other than to Republicans long term? I mean, 
Mitch McConnell supposedly I last public numbers I saw for for his numbers in Kentucky were challenging and it seems entirely as a result of Trump's attack on the majority leader, which is incredible since they're both the same for the, the healthcare debate other than solidify the position that Obamacare is flawed, but people like it better than anything the Republicans have to offer. So that seems pretty conclusive. I think it's also interesting, just as a sidebar, that for a guy who loved putting his name on things, he had no intention of any of these health care bills being touted as Trump care. And I think that tells you that he was never behind them from the get-go. Interesting. Alan Moore? Yeah, so it seemed to me, as I've said now uh, for (laughs) quite a few years, that this a, a partisan repeal and replace effort was doomed to fail. We were too far in, too far gone. The differences were too deep and too many. So from my standpoint, they weren't ever going to get there. Having said that, the president did additional damage. First, the first big, it, it, it didn't bother me that much. I mean, it bothers me some, but, but the fact that he didn't know much about it um, in and of itself meant if he turns it over to the Congress where the people, these guys, do actually know quite a lot about it, that's not necessarily bad. He made a few pro- mistakes, though. He went way beyond what Republicans were, were, were promising in, in their repeal and replace. Because remember, it was initially just repeal, and then it was repeal and replace, and we'll have a better system. He went in some detail about how much better it was going to be, how many more people were going to be $15 a month, baby, and, $15 and, a month. And, <laughs> and how and, and how and, and how everybody was going to be better off and, and for for less money. It was just stuff that he pulled out of the air. That was not talking points among Republicans. That was not helpful. Then, when the House passed a bill, it was controversial in its own right. He has a little celebration down at the White House, which was bizarre because they hadn't really achieved anything yet. And then within weeks, was saying of the House bill that he'd celebrated at the, at the White House, that bill is a mean bill. It's so a massive setback. Are you are you saying that are you saying that the there's two sides to the, what the president's taken as far as this health care issue? Well, so you, your question was has did he harm the effort? And I said I don't think there was even a way to succeed. But does he hold any blame in it? He also he also did damage. He elevated expectations. He undercut the House bill that he claimed to to to, to celebrate. And then when it got to the Senate in in the round a couple of months ago, when they really needed Lisa Murkowski, who they probably could have gotten if uh, they had a president who knew how to uh, persuade and cajole and politely request rather than threaten. And he he and the, 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 the Interior Department threatened her with loss of funds, putting her in an impossible position. She didn't like the bill in the first place, but she might have gone along, and they made it impossible for her. Now, if that had passed, I think we still wouldn't have a repeal and replace bill. So if I'm right and we never were going to get there purely on a partisan basis ever, no matter what, then you can't totally blame the president but he muddied the hell out of the waters. He damaged Republicans. Does, he fed the narrative. Does this hurt Mitch McConnell in the end? Well, 
hurt. You know, that ultimately Mitch McConnell serves at the pleasure of his colleagues in the Senate. News just out, he's going to lose one. Bob Corker of Tennessee announced just within the last half hour he's not going to run again next year. He's chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. But And, and, that's, and that's an unfortunate loss. I'm a big fan of Corker. But, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. There will likely be another Republican from Tennessee, but you never know. Um, is it a Trump Republican or is it a McCain Republican? Bring out four out of mothballs. You know, there's there, there, Corker already had a, a far right uh, challenger, um, and I don't know what's going to happen in Tennessee. It's way too soon. Um, but but what 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 the president does by being highly critical of these individuals and talking about them as lousy Republicans is it is it depresses everyone. It it's painful and harmful, including to Mitch McConnell. The president attacks McConnell. McConnell is the elected leader of the Republicans in the Senate. There are 52 of them. They give him a lot of support and a lot of credit for doing an impossible job. The president doesn't understand that job. He doesn't understand that there are 51 free agents out there who have a major responsibility to keep the folks back home happy, and maybe that lines up neatly with uh, whatever we're getting from President Trump this week or this day, um, and sometimes it doesn't. But in the end of the day, I think there's an enormous amount of sympathy for how hard McConnell works, how close he came to doing the, the, the nigh impossible to get a bill through the Senate. I was amazed they got that close, um, not amazed that they failed. Well, we're going to keep an eye changes. on that. How's it both chambers, uh, real uh, quick? Uh, no, no, no. But the the Mitch McConnell having a impossible job for the as leader Republican leader of the Senate. Paul Ryan also has a impossible job as Republican leader of the House. It both chambers have uh, are are being bullied by an insane minority group that are demanding the impossible because they don't understand how anything works. And Paul Ryan's being bullied by the same set of folks that Mitch McConnell is being bullied by, both of which are being led by the president. So it's an impossible job, and it's also showing, proving to be impossible for, for Republicans to govern, which is a more macro problem, but we can cover that at another point. And before we break, well, I just yeah, want gonna, to quickly gonna... point out that that part compounding the problem is the fact that you have a president who fundamentally doesn't understand the independence of the legislative branch. I think that what you've seen from his repeated attacks on lawmakers who don't agree with his policies or the or his campaign promises is that he truly still believes that senators and congressmen work for him. That, you know, as Alan and and Dan said, he doesn't understand that these people have independent constituencies that they need to be held accountable to. Right, right. It makes one wonder if, you know, if if you're an immigrant and you want to become a citizen, you have to pass an exam uh, of 
President's about, exam? Uh, yeah, it's something. No, it's it's a, a, a how does America work exam? Right. American Constitution, system of government. I think it's something like a hundred questions, and I dare say that that um, that I would question whether a certain leader. <laughs> would actually uh, be able to pass that exam or even get half of it. There's this extraordinary, um, dangerous level of ignorance. We're going to, well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to start a discussion that is going to take a while, and we're going to break up that discussion. During the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to have the founder of Kurdistan 24, the news network from the newly independent Kurdish state, uh, joining us on the air to talk about the referendum and how that may change the geopolitical scene in the region, which is already very sensitive. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to start the discussion on Donald Trump versus the NFL and the NBA and all kinds of interesting fallout from that. This is Backroom Politics live from the National Press Club here in Washington, D.C. Stand by. We'll be back in two minutes.
backroom politics. And good afternoon again. We're back here live at the National Press Club in downtown Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Block Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday is the man that we know as Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine, Dan Lipner, and joining us from New York, she is the lead, former legal counsel to the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, Sharma Achari. Uh, folks, we're going to take a little bit before we uh, talk about the Kurdish independence question that was voted on yesterday, but I do want to start off talking about the other big subject. In case you have not noticed, President Trump has a beef with the NFL. President Trump thinks that the players that are taking a knee during the national anthem on TV not on TV, uh, staying in the locker room. They are unpatriotic, they are ungrateful, and should be, in his words, from Friday's uh, campaign-style event in Birmingham, Alabama, they should be fired. This has started a whole new media storm regarding not only the president's rhetoric, but it has started a media storm about uh, – the American flag, respecting the American flag, respecting the national anthem when it is appropriate to stand, when it is not appropriate, First Amendment rights, it has become a huge crowd work. Alan Moore, you're here in studio. Uh, is this something that is being blown out of proportion by the president's rhetoric, or is this a situation that has just become exacerbated by everybody chiming in? Well, gosh, it's sort of yes and yes. Um, we talked uh, last year when, when Colin Kaepernick um, uh, was was the first one to do to, to, to kneel, uh, and he did it very much uh, really courageous, one has to say. It the first the person that was noticed so kneeling, not the first person to do it. That's incorrect. He... he well, he's the, it, he was the, certainly the, the first one to do it very visibly, and the, and the one who said this is really about uh, about police brutality towards African American men. Um, a number of uh, incidents that had piled up where uh, where unarmed uh, blacks were killed, and no punishment was meted out in the judicial system, and. It, it was it was all about race and treatment of of African American males at its core, and the unequal uh, treatment, if you will. And I think that anybody who's honest will acknowledge, painful as it is, that that kind of inequality does exist um, in, in this country. It ruined Kaepernick's career, but a, but a, but a number of people began to to back him up and say, why is he being vilified? And these are his First Amendment rights, and you get into questions of, of freedom of expression, but also the, the question of how free are you to express your opinions when you're on the job, and most employers have, have rules on what is and is not allowed. The president just greatly enhanced and increased uh, visibility, uniting in an odd way uh, most uh, 
professional sports teams who are are heavily uh, integrated in, in in both football and basketball. Minority, uh, I'm seeing the majority of, of the athletes are African Americans, um, and their white and their white teammates uh, uh, know them, like them, care about them, appreciate them, understand them, like most whites don't get a chance to. This is not new. I remember when Bill Bradley, former U.S. Senator um, uh, and and former professional basketball player, was a highly visible advocate for um, uh, for racial justice uh, and and close-up witness to prejudice against his own team members on the New York Knicks, who were world champions one of the years he was there. this stuff is brewing, and the president has again, in his, this this unfortunate way he has, of equating support for him and uh, support for the flag and the country and 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 the the military right. on the one side with with total disrespect if somebody chooses uh, to kneel. Sharmila, your thoughts. So I agree with everything Alan said, but one thing I'd like to point out, I've said this before and I will say it again, Trump is a master of the eye of Sauron, right? Do you think there is, do you think it's a coincidence that he made these remarks the same day, a few hours after John McCain announced he wasn't supporting Graham Cassidy? I don't. He is a master of pulling the media's attention away from the story of the day to where he wants it to be. Because when the story becomes, when the story goes from Republican and Trump-supported healthcare repeal fails again to Trump versus the NFL, automatically is favorable to him. The people who don't support Trump, who think he's a racist, are going to continue to think so. The people who think that Trump supports America and that he he really gets what this country is about are going to dig in their heels further. Whereas something like the healthcare repeal only serves to undermine him. Admiral Ken, what are your thoughts on this? Because you know we we've been hearing a lot about, and particularly out of the president, that uh, service members die, and you should stand for the flag, or else you're disrespecting service members. Uh, you are disrespecting your country by not standing. You are. Uh, I, I've seen. Words go back and forth calling these players uh, domestic terrorists and, and, and other just stupid names. Where does this, where does this go from here, Kat? Admiral Ken. A couple points, Admiral and Ken? I'll try. No, 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 no. A couple points, and I'll try to be as brief as I can. Um, one, so the first time Colin uh, Kaepernick decided not to stand for the, um, the national anthem, he, uh, he was seated. And uh, a member of the staff uh, of the, the 49ers basically said, hey, man, i got to tell you, that really bothers me. That bothers me a lot. And uh, if you're going to do that, um, take a knee, kneel. Don't, don't just sit, kneel. You know, you know um, when, when, when someone gets hurt on the field, um, little league kids are taught to take a knee and, and out of respect for that person uh, in, until they're off the field. And so 
it just so happens that the person asking asked Colin Kaepernick to take a knee and not just stand was a former service member, specifically a Navy SEAL. That's the first thing. So the president's uh, use of um, military people laid up in the hospital uh, recovering from their wounds and this being a slap in their face um, is about as accurate as, as a lot of other things we've heard him say in the last nine months. Two, uh, as one of the other panelists on this, this, uh, on this show that's actually worn the uniform and been in harm's way, uh, I did it to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. I took that oath uh, nine times in my, my 32-year career. And following the Constitution means that you're following not just the, uh, the words but the spirit of it. And freedom of speech and freedom of expression is part of what uh, makes America great. Uh, as I, I personally don't like it when people don't stand up and put their hand over their heart uh, doing the playing of the national anthem. But you know what? As someone who fought, literally fought for the right for people to express themselves as they care to, I am not going to diminish in how someone chooses to do their, their protest. They are free in this country to do that, and I think that's what makes us great. Um, the I think I think I think uh, Alan said it best that this all started. This all started with Colin Kaepernick bringing attention to the fact that um, black men were getting shot down in the street by police officers in the United States of America. Uh, we have let the president, Charlotte, hit the nail right on the head, basically pull this argument off where it started, and to use it to diminish the fact that he screwed up and he couldn't get something passed with regard to health care. And finally, um, you know, for the one or two listeners who are, whose mouths are dropped right now uh, at hearing that I am, you know, uh, against um, uh, censoring anyone, um, not standing for the, uh, the flag of the United States, I urge you to go back and hear what I said. With regard to professional football players and them getting in trouble with their, their organizations, just like everybody else on this show, when we work for a company, what we do in company time is, uh, is under the purview of that company. But what we do in our free time, what we do on our own, that's up to us as Americans. And, again, it's one of the main reasons I put on the uniform and stayed there as long as I did. Dan Littner, does the president have, and, and there are others that have expressed this thought process that say, look, if they want to protest against uh, against whatever issue that they want, they should not do it in the uniform of an NFL team, and they should not do it on the dime of the owners. Is there any legitimacy to that? I mean, there's a slight bit of legitimacy to it. However, the question is, who decides and which issues count, which ones don't. I mean, there are plenty of folks in the Washington Post did a piece in response to it that pointed out all of, all of the protests or the, the, the anger that was directed at Tim Tebow for kneeling uh, after, a, after a touchdown, but kneeling in prayer. And I, I found it interesting because I was amongst the people who was not a big fan of it since I don't, think religion and, and sports go together in that way because I don't think God cares whether or not you scored a touchdown, but that's just me. Uh, but I do recall plenty of people celebrating Tim Tebow and him wearing his Christianity on, on his shoulder and people who were prepared to protest and did if, if 
the league or the owners took action against him doing this particular display. Uh, so it, it seems to be selective. H- however, as far as this particular protest and the what, as Alan has correctly described, and as Admiral Ken has correctly described, and Sharmila as well, in this particular case, this is a cry of desperation that trying to draw people's attention to the fact that a significant percentage of our society is treated differently by law enforcement. And if you can't, if you can't protest peaceably, peaceably, what's the alternative? And for the, all of those people who are yell, standing up and down and yelling, and there are plenty of YouTube videos about showing people burning their NFL garb, that saying that, you know, this is that one politics free time, I would simply ask how much of that other time, the other six days a week, have they spent thinking at all about the issue that those gentlemen are taking a knee for as a, as a shout for attention and a cry for help? And I would argue very little of that time has been spent. However, in response to the president's statement and somewhat diminishing the presidency, that the NFL is now looking larger than the presidency of the United States, which is troubling. Um, well, Dan, people, like me, Robert Kraft, people like Robert Kraft and Jerry Jones, neither of which exactly progressive, are on the side of the players on this. That's incredible. Dan, let me let me Dan, let me just point out also the fact that it seems that the what Donald Trump was trying to do is to get his friends, the NFL owners, to get behind him. It's actually united the players' association and the owners in a sign of sol- solidarity. Ellen Moore this well, is backfired on the president. Yeah, well, it's interesting. There's a supreme irony here. The president. Presidents of the United States have a duty, in my humble opinion, and most of, them, most of them have honored this and accepted this as a duty, to bring the country together on matters of controversy and challenge in, in, in this country, whether it's threats from abroad, threats from within, um, unfair treatment of some versus others, long, long history of presidents trying to, uh, to be uh, uniters and not dividers. That doesn't mean they do it every time, and there are some things where it, it, it by the very nature, are going to be uh, challenging opinions. But even when it's a challenging issue, abortion might be a good one, you'll, you'll find conciliatory language normally, not accusatory language not name-calling, not from the president. This president's very different in that regard. He fails fundamentally and constantly at what I call uh, a, a fundamental presidential duty of uniting. The irony is that by being over-the-top nasty, calling these people SOBs, suggesting that they should be fired and calling on fans to boycott, talk about divisive, um, he, he has had this odd influence, this impact of uniting considerably more people than most of us would have expected. Good gosh, 
Jerry Jones last night with the Dallas Cowboys found a really creative alternative, a little creative solution. Stand with his team, interlink arms, kneel in the center of the field, then stand up, stand to the side, continue to have your arms linked, tap the flag, sing the national anthem. They got they 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 got to have uh, both a a. Uh, a, a chance to make this symbolic statement about what is so important uh, to uh, an enormous number now of players uh, being accused of being disre- disrespectful of the flag. I don't happen to feel that way about it. I don't think it's the smartest way to go. On the one hand, it doesn't gross me out or offend me, and I certainly don't want to call them spoiled brats and traitors. And Kaepernick, for gosh sakes, has basically uh, so far ended uh, a, a career way prematurely. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, at the top of the hour, when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion. Uh, we're still waiting to hear. Uh, hopefully, our friends in Erbil are going to call in and talk about Kurdish independence later on in the show. But when we come back, we're going to continue the NFL versus Donald Trump discussion. This is Backroom Politics Live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., on Bob Talk Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us.
new romance for me It's foolish to start For that old feeling Is still in my politics and we're back here live at the national press club this is the best political talk show you've never heard of it is backroom politics live on blog talk radio joining me here in studio is alan moore joining us on the split screen edition is the man that we know as admiral ken caradine and joining us from new york she is sharma achari uh we're going to continue the discussion on the president versus the nfl uh let's talk a little bit, uh, Sharma, let's go to you real quick, because, you know, when we look at the rhetoric and the base of Donald Trump, it seems, particularly after his rally in Birmingham on Friday night, that this has sparked an even more nationalistic approach to a lot of Donald Trump's base. The question is, is that base large enough to sustain Donald Trump's support long-term? Well, one thing I wanted to note uh, earlier in, in this segment is, and this is you know, coming from someone who's not a super avid sports fan, but what's interesting here is that I think part of the reason that this story has gotten so much traction is even listening to Alan and Dan and Admiral Ken talk about it earlier people really perceive the NFL as almost a quasi-public, quasi-governmental institution, right? If this was a question of a true private workplace, if this was a question of Microsoft employees not kneeling during the singing of the national anthem for some reason, no, no one would really be talking about this. But there is this perception, there's become this conflation of sports, which are you know, run by private organizations, and our culture, which has so integrated into part of our national zeitgeist that I think there is a lot of confusion about where the line between private organization and public organization, where that line begins and ends. So that's just an outside observation. But going to your actual question about President Trump and how long he can hold on to his base, I think that you see that the base is – the base is holding pretty firm, but it is getting chipped away at. Every time he goes on one of these non-sequiturs, every time he shoots himself in the foot, every time he escalates a conflict that didn't need, or picks a fight that didn't need to happen, I think you see small groups of people peeling off and just saying, this is too much. I don't know if there's ever going to come a point where the iceberg breaks in half completely, but I think that he he is doing the best job of – he's doing a much better job than the Democrats are of chipping away at his own base. Admiral Ken, Sharma brings up a really interesting point here, and that point is that this is, these are private, privately owned organizations, these NFL teams. They have owners. They have – uh, chief of operations, they have corporate infrastructure. And 
that, you know, if these people protest, they have the First Amendment right to do so. Whether or not they're going to have to answer their ownership, which I want to point out, all but one owner, and that is the owner of the Carolina Panthers, has come out in support of the kneeling and have gone against the president. But regardless, if the ownership wanted to take action, they could. They just choose not to. Is this now going to be something that either the owners are afraid to touch or is this something that's going to hurt the actual viewership and the bottom line for the NFL? Well, I heard a commentator over the weekend uh, make the comment that the last time he saw the NFL this unified was during the player strikes a number of years ago. And so I think that that commentator's words probably, uh, though they might not have been heard at the time by a great many of the owners, the owners still have got that memory very fresh in their mind. So let's think about this. It's supply and demand, right? So we've got um, we've got multi-billion dollar organizations, these NFL teams, uh, the, arguably the most successful of them um, by, by monetary standards being the Dallas Cowboys and the Washington Redskins. And so the owners understand that, you know, so a few disaffected fans might not show up, but a good many of the others will because a good amount of the country kind of gets it where this kneeling uh, type of protest uh, is coming from and why it's there. There may be a few booers, there may be a few naysayers, but by and large, the people that were booing on Sunday and and Monday night, they may have booed, but I don't remember there being uh, video of them getting out of their seats and walking out of the stadium in mass. Not going to happen. So nor did their tickets get refunded. Nor did their tickets get refunded exactly. So I I don't I don't I think the chances of the 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 NFL. Um, I think the NFL, the NFL owners, just like any other uh, any other business person, uh, is has to take calculated risks at at uh, from time to time. I think that this was a low uh, risk calculated uh, uh, calculation. It really was. Um, Alan Moore. Uh, oh, okay. So I, I I do believe that that the owners are feeling an enormous amount of pressure among themselves to find some kind of resolution to this that both is respectful of their team members um, and respectful of fans who are offended by players taking uh, a knee. Uh, That's why I was intrigued with, with the Jerry Jones solution, joining his team, taking a knee before the game, getting some booze, but then standing uh, for the, for the flag and the anthem. The league can set rules Individual teams can set their own rules. Um, uh, this last weekend, a lot of teams uh, inside the locker room tried to figure out uh, what to do, probably in consultation with general managers uh, and owners. There's a big question coming up this Saturday. What are the colleges going to do? They're all paying attention. Um, and and are, are they going to go a lot of different directions? How about high schools? Um, what what the owners don't want is this thing to get out of control. And even if it's even if it's a handful of people who 
stop watching, don't come to the game, leave the game, one, two, three, four percent. I don't have any idea what, what the number might be. That stuff matters to owners. Well, let me ask this question, Alan. Hold on, Sharma. Hasn't it already gotten out of control in some in some way or form? Uh, the fact that uh, this now has divided in such an ugly way the country as far as stand kneel. Have we, has that ship already left the dock? No, I don't think so. I think I think this last weekend we saw a bunch of different ways. We had we had teams that stayed inside the locker room. We had the Jerry Jones example. We had the Washington Redskins. We had a few kneelers, a lot of standers, everybody with their arms linked, including the owner out there. What they need is is to find a way to respect the powerful, strong feelings of team members. Um, and also not do significant damage to uh, uh, corporations that are worth a lot of money and that can't afford to lose fans gratuitously. It's one thing if people just get tired of football or or don't want to be involved in something that does uh, brain damage to to so many players. Um, You know, there's been very little talk, uh, certainly not yet on here, about the comments that, that, that Trump made when he was not only taking on uh, wanting to wanting to punish the kneelers, but then said, and the game's going soft, and they're they're changing the rules, and you can't have hits, and these guys want to hit, and they need to 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 uh, take some of those rules away so these guys who love to hit can keep hitting. And my question for his wife is, are you going to let your son Baron play football? I mean, people are are moving away. Parents are moving their kids away from football in droves because brain damage is, is, is an increasingly common occurrence for people who play serious high school and college ball, not to mention uh, professional football. And, 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 and in some, I mean, I was offended by, by the president trying to politicize this and being so divisive. I was also offended by him trying to say that professional football is moving in the wrong direction by trying to protect players from serious and permanent injury. So to, to add on to Alan's point, I think that the president did make a fundamental political miscalculation in these remarks because I think in his mind, he thought naturally the owners and the public would side with the president and the flag and our, um, our armed service members over a bunch of overpaid African-American athletes. I think to him, that was a very natural, a natural reaction, but it ended up, that ended up backfiring on him. I think you've, you've seen that, A, the owners, with the exception of um, the governor of Illinois, <laughs> uh, Bruce Rauner, stand squarely with their players. And um, in general, the public also standing with the players as well, other than kind of these small pockets of people who are booing. And I think partially because of what Alan talked about, because they're not just um, – they're not just – 
overpaid athletes. They're athletes who work very hard to earn the money they do and who are suffering these really adverse health consequences that are coming out more and more, right? The same day that President Trump maybe I think it was even more galling, he made those remarks about rolling back precautions for concussion safety on the day that it was found out that Aaron Hernandez had one of the worst cases of CTE that doctors had ever seen. But, Dan Lipner, I want to ask this question because it came out over the weekend that apparently this, and I don't know how uh, any other way to put this, but this tirade by the president that he started last Friday at his rally, almost campaign-like, in Birmingham, Alabama, Chief of Staff at the White House, John Kelly, had no idea that this was even on the agenda or even an item for discussion during the rally, that this is something that the president just took up and just went full blast on. Are we starting to see the unraveling of the White House again where even somebody as dedicated as John Kelly cannot control this president, cannot help himself? Well, for something to be unraveled, it must first be wound, <laughs> and this thing certainly Rebel. has not been tightly wound. So, this massive thread that is sitting there that this White House appears to be, um, yeah, nobody can control this president. That's a given, but it's worth this rally in Alabama for, as I believe it was for Senator Strange, who looks as though he's on his way to losing to a crazy man. Dan Lipner, do you mean the, the Senate candidate from Alabama who actually waved a loaded revolver at a rally today? How do we know it was loaded? Uh, Senator Strange rolled? Oh, no. He, he, uh, he, he, Senator Strange. Yeah. Or, 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 or Senator Strange did. did. Yeah, more did that. More did person. Really like, and, and I don't say that lightly. A believer of the Second Amendment pulls out his handguns. But, but yeah. Uh, I go back to the question of it, it seems to me that John Kelly, if he had his way, there would never be another campaign like rally during this term as long as Trump is president, as long as he's chief of staff, which is going to survive. John Kelly or the if, rallies? If John Kelly had his way, he, he, he'd be ushering President Number 46 into the Oval Office. But that's not the choice we have at the moment. The, the, the president has lost, is, is a showman, is, a, is the P.T. Barnum of politics at the moment. And unfortunately, the, the way he views things is not in the terms of the the 51% of the public you need to get things done to actually govern and try and unite the country in a way. He looks at it in the sense of he's got this third, which is an enormous sum that any marketer, if you had a third of the country buying your product, you'd be a rock star. And that's the way he views it. And he keeps playing to this same group over and over and over again. But he's creating more problems. As Alan said, what happens when a public university or a public high school has athletes, student athletes taking a knee? You suddenly have a different legal beast. 
um, as far as that freedom of speech and uh, on the field, uh, what happens? Is the president going to going after high school kids? It's plausible that that could happen. It, it, he's Admiral, not doing Admiral his Ken, job as a uniter. Yeah, Admiral Ken. I'd like to say if if John Kelly had his way, the president would never speak in public. Some of his best viral photos have been in the lobby of Trump Tower during what was supposed to be an ordinary press conference and then at the U.N. General Assembly. Well, we haven't even talked about that yet. We haven't even talked about North Korea. We haven't even talked about there's so many things we need to get to. But I want to close out this segment real quick and just talk about and, and just ask Admiral Ken, we saw NASCAR, the NASCAR race over the weekend where all the teams stood for the national anthem. They stood locked arm. Uh, and there seemed to be solidarity. Are, are we at a point where we might be seeing a NASCAR Trump face versus NFL, NBA, non-Trump face? Are we going to start seeing that divide get greater, bigger, uh, more divisive? Well, so the answer to that question is let's go back to why this kneeling manner of protests started in the first place, right? It started because Colin Kaepernick wanted to draw attention to the fact that that African Americans were basically getting shot down in the streets by cops, predominantly white cops. So that that is that is that is a a, a malady that affects part of the American culture. That most people at a NASCAR event really couldn't give a rat's butt about. They really couldn't. That is not the thing that they're worried about. And so people tend to see the world in their own prism. You know, everything's hunky-dory for me. Those poor people, gosh, I feel sorry for them. But, you know, it would take something different, something like them encountering it. uh, It's happening to a family member or a close friend for them to be willing to cross that line and get involved with it. So it's not so much that, you, that, that, that President Trump is creating a cultural divide. That divide already is there. President Trump's words and actions are, are only magnifying it. Very good. Well, uh, I'm going to take moderator privilege here because we've got so much we've got to talk about. We're going to blow through the break here. And we're obviously, this is not a situation that's going to be going away anytime soon, but we, we do have to talk about a, another couple of items here is, Admiral Ken, you brought up uh, Donald Trump's appearance at the U.N. General Assembly last no, that was my that, that was my evil twin, Dan, but thank you. Oh, Dan brought that up. Dan, good job. Uh, Dan, I'll give you the first question here. Is did, did Donald Trump in that speech do anything to affect his credibility in the positive on the international stage last week? Uh, it makes me more positive that he's incompetent to do the job. <laughs> okay, there's that. Alan Moore, did Donald Trump do himself any favors last week at the UN General Assembly? I don't think so, and I and I'm I'm hesitant because it, instead of saying no, um, which would would be very tempting, uh, and, and, answer. and I think it's mostly no. Um, there, there are some some experts uh, of which I am not, of whom I am not one, um, 
on on North Korea who see uh, some benefit, not enormous and not without <laughs> this counterweight um, of of keeping North Korea a bit off guard and wondering what this president is really thinking about. There are reports uh, just in the the last couple of days that the North Koreans have been reaching out in, uh, in third countries. They don't, they've got a handful of people in New York at the UN mission who are not allowed to travel around the U S. So if they want to talk to Americans, they have to go through the mail or they have to talk to third parties in other countries, but the North Koreans do show up at international conferences and meetings of different types. And there's, there's been a, a, a burst of energy in, in recent months of trying to get former U.S. government officials who have some knowledge of uh, or perceived knowledge of this president, what he's up to, what he's thinking. They are as confused about what our president is really up to, and it is hard, uh, uh, as we are about uh, uh, President Kim. Um, and, and what I've seen is some people saying, although it's generally um, problematic and negative and in tone, not the kind of ways we want to talk to North Koreans, and it's risky, but by keeping – but, but perhaps, maybe, there's a little bit of benefit here um, of keeping them wondering and a little nervous and a little hesitant. So – by and large, mostly no, but, but I thought it was worth mentioning that some people, without embracing or endorsing, right. would say that he, he, he maybe stumbled into um, uh, making the, the, the North Koreans uh, wonder about this. So let me, let me ask you this question. You, you dealt a lot with the humanitarian crisis and refugee uh, crises uh, around the globe at yep. various times in your career. President Trump basically came out during his speech to the General Assembly and said, look, you know, for $10 a refugee, I can do more than to have to spend thousands of dollars to bring them over here and have them integrate into our society. Let me keep them close to their homelands. Let me keep them close to their own people. I'll just give you the money. Is there some logic in that? Because apparently there are some that believe that President Trump might be onto something. No, 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 no. That's mostly what we do. That's an embrace of the status quo. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars in refugee camps all over the world near areas of conflict where the objective is to keep them safe, keep them relative, keep them healthy, food, water, and, 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 and the security element, set up schools in the hope that they can return to their homes. There are places, and you know, if you really want to think about history, there are Palestinians who went to refugee camps in 1948 and they're, they're through four generations still live in those refugee camps. Right. Um, they didn't go elsewhere. They still have a hope and dream of a Palestinian state and, and, and going back home. Around the world where there are millions and millions of refugees and displaced people, we mostly keep them close by in willing countries who need financial support to do this. We bring a handful to America. Many of those we bring to America 
are people who are vulnerable in 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 their situations now because they typically helped the Americans um, if we if we bring them in the the Iraqi refugees for example Afghani refugees are there's a special category of refugee of a visa for people who helped the American military and are under uh, are, are particularly vulnerable to persecution so. It's what we do now. We don't bring that many in. He wants to reduce the number, and many but of Trump, us would like Trump to. Trump made this sound like it was some sort of brilliant idea. Well, that's because he's up. never heard of it. <laughs> Listen, there, and there the, are Trump, the Trump base is against both the money of and the people. US government programs. The president were to learn about them, would say, what a great idea. Why don't we do that? And we'd say, we've been doing that for 30 years. Admiral Ken, you had something? Uh, again, I, I, again, I believe it was my, my, my evil twin, Dan. Dan? Yeah, as, as I was saying, that the Trump base is against both bringing the people into the country and spending any more money on, on them. Most of the Trump base would suggest we are spending way too much money. And, I, and as we've seen data on this from way back when the Concord Coalition was still producing data, uh, and I assume they still are, shows that people think we spend something like half the budget on foreign aid. It's just not true. But the Trump people don't know that. So therefore, when the president says these things, I have no doubt there's some percentage of them thinking, wow, this is brilliant. This is amazing. This guy should have run the the country from the beginning because he's got all these great ideas that we've been doing for 70 some odd years. Very true. Going back to the situation, go ahead, Charmel. Oh, sorry, I was going to say that one other thing we didn't point out about uh, President Trump's presence at the U.N. wasn't so much about uh, the president himself, but the fact that his administration has so understaffed the State Department that the United States' presence at the and their impact at the General Assembly has been significantly hampered by the fact that we don't have enough diplomatic staff to take all the meetings required to affect real diplomacy. Uh, that's true too. That's that's been that's been something going on since the beginning. Absolutely. I, I do want to go back. Also, I do want to go back and address the situation in Korea. And Admiral Ken, I want to bring you in on this. A lot of rhetoric going between the North Korean Foreign Minister up at the General Assembly, as well as President Trump, uh, calling him Rocket Man, Little Rocket Man, uh, calling him everything but a North Korean. Uh, Hamilton, are we in fact closer to military action against North Korea, or is there some minor glimpse of hope that there could be diplomacy that works out? Well, you know, I think after answering this question accurately, I'm going to go out and buy a lottery ticket tonight. Um, uh I honestly don't know, Justin. You know, the the thing is, um, I've been, I guess, a close observer slash participant of the North Korean issues since I was a very, very uh, senior lieutenant in the Navy, and that was a long time ago, 1990s. And um, um, and one would tell you if you go if you go up to the DMZ that we've been on the brink now since 19, 1954. 
Um, uh, and all you got to do is go for a visit. Anybody can. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend going to North Korea, especially after the Auto One beer experience. But you can go right up to the DMZ. And uh, you know, and there's a very stark difference, and you you'll see, you can visibly see it. Um, my hope is, and we've talked about this on on this air several times, is that we can find a diplomatic solution that would forego the need of any kind of military action, because whatever military action we decide to take, South Korea is gone, wiped out, gone, no longer in existence. Yeah, yeah it would it wouldn't even be suitable for a parking lot because there won't be anything flat to park a car on. Um, the the economic fallout, let alone any kind of uh, other type of uh, fallout, uh, would be devastating. Uh, I think it would make the the uh, the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 look like a walk in the park. So my hope is, you know, for all of our sakes, uh, financially as well as uh, uh, and from a humanitarian perspective, that there's that there's a way out. Um, you know, the biggest difference between where we are now and where we were a year ago is that um, the North Koreans finally, you know, have 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 nukes and missiles. Um, we knew that they were on the building program and we're probably going to get them at some point. And we've got two idiots basically shouting uh, um, um, insults at one another instead of one that we were just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he, he's a noisy kid. He likes to play. But you know, let's let's you know just not let's not antagonize him because he might he might break something we really care about, and that's really the only big difference. Um, and now instead of um, you know finding a way to you know uh, you know maybe sit down and and uh, and have a conversation, you know, the only thing that we're interested is doing is you know you've got dog poop on your shoe too, and it's just not going anywhere. But Alan Moore. Going off what Ken says, it, 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 it strikes me as the cooler heads, i.e. the Secretary of Defense Mattis, the Secretary of State Tillerson, the National Security Advisor McMaster, uh, John Kelly, are almost letting the president, just as there may be some North Korean senior officials that are letting uh, President Kim do his tirades and lash out in temper tantrums. Are, are we naive to think that we could see a diplomatic solution to the North Korean question, or are we being uh, blind to the fact that this could end up and more than likely will end up in armed conflict? Well, <laughs> first of all, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the words our guys are letting the president do stuff, or that 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 the people around Kim are letting President Kim, or let, letting Kim um, uh, say these things. Agree. These guys are the main guys. You don't get to blame staff. It, staff can do everything they can, and up to and including resigning if they feel like they're not being listened to, um, uh, or or if they're being dismissed in another way. So. What we've got is a president who's in many ways his own actor here, which is scary. It appears that we have the same thing in North Korea. Having said that, I don't believe, partly it's because I, I don't want to believe, but I don't believe that either one of them is completely insane. Now, um, so I, I, I think the odds are against armed conflict. That doesn't mean we won't have armed conflict, and we could all put 
you know, put odds of, of, of you know, the likelihood, and, and, and I think they're, they're fairly small, although they are real. Um, and and I, it, it, this is one of those things where if we have armed conflict, historians will look back, and they'll look back at the last couple of months and the last couple of weeks, and some of the, these really taunting, ugly uh, schoolboy tweets that the president was sending, and then the, uh, Kim was responding in kind, um, so's your old man kind of thing, um, and we're going to blow you up, we'll, we'll wipe you off the face of the earth, well, you've declared war on us, so, you know, we, we're, we're now thinking we're probably going to, we'll, we'll be bombing all of America. It, it's, it's exaggerated, it's also frightening, and it's dangerous, um, and, and South Korea is sitting there kind of in the crosshairs. Um, well, not I, just South I, Korea. You, I mean, Japan. No, no, no. But South Korea is next door. They've got, artil- they've got thousands of artillery pieces 30 miles from Seoul. Seoul is 30 miles, 35 miles from the border. Right. And it's 25 million people in the greater Seoul area, half of the population of Korea. I don't think that that, that a war will wipe out Korea. I think it will ruin Korea. It'll, it'll, the, the numbers I was hearing is one and a half to two million people out of 50. But it, you can't lose two million people and mass devastation uh, of property and fear. And then it's not like South Korea or the U.S. would stand by and do nothing. So even if we didn't use nukes, there would be massive damage loss of life, and so on. And our hope is that our people understand that, that they understand that, and they won't be tweaked or provoked, which is da- it's a dangerous risk to run, into firing the first shot. Because firing the first shot is probably firing a lot of shots. And once the onslaught starts, um, uh, you could just do massive damage, and historians would look back, at the last few weeks and say, yeah, that contributed to this. So let me get, let me get this straight. Going off of what you said, Alan, Dan Lipner, are we literally looking at a old Cold War, mutually assured destruction scenario here, but in just an odd kind of four-party way? No, 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 no. The mad doctrine in this case it is if – all parties have something resembling the same risk. Uh, Long-range ballistic missiles with the improvements that the North Koreans are doing, yeah, you still got to aim them. Uh, The the hitting a target is a different creature. So Japan, South Korea, absolute disasters. Most of the continental United States, not so much. Now, North Korea would also be ultimately destroyed. So the question is whether or not that game of brinksmanship, and heaven forbid, what if something, something minor happened? You, have, you had the issues a few years ago with an American aircraft literally getting bumped into by a, a Chinese fighter, and that the Chinese pilot and the Chinese fighter was destroyed and the pilot was killed, the American plane had to do an emergency landing on Chinese territory. How was that handled? 
what happens if something even remotely close to that happens with the Korean, the North Korean? Is the Trump administration going to be calm and work on a, a negotiated approach on this? Or is he going to respond as he said when the, when the, when the, uh, the, when the sailors were captured by an Iranian patrol in the Persian Gulf and saying that the president handled this wrong and he, that, that would never happen under his watch and he'd kick their ass or some version of that. This is not a calm gentleman we have in the Oval Office. There is li- we don't know. And I get the folks that, that say, you know, this is putting the North Koreans a, a little off guard because of it. I, I understand that logic, but that all presumes that when something happens where you could where it could spin out of control really quickly, you have calm, collected folks that are at the helm. And while I have no doubt with Secretary Mattis or or, or the White House Chief of Staff, the President, I have serious doubts about exactly what he would order in response. Alan Warren. Yeah, it, it, one of the challenges here is is we've got a situation where the where the North Koreans have made massive sacrifice to have the investment, to have uh, um, nuclear weapons, and um, uh, intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles that they hope to marry one to the other. They're not, they haven't done that yet as far as we know. It's complicated. Um, so as, as Dan said, you've got to be able to shoot it and you've got to be able to aim it. And you've got to be able to mount a weapon and make sure that it will explode at the right at, at the right time. Those are still very scientifically demanding, expensive things. They're moving in that direction. We're not sure uh, just where they are. They care about being a nuclear state more than anything, more than their own survival, more than the the health and welfare of their people. We we sort of have to comprehend that. Meanwhile, in our prior thinking, we can't tolerate that. We can't stand that. But after saying that for a couple of decades, we have done almost nothing other than some sanctions to slow them down or stop them. And it, it may well – and meanwhile, the thing they hate the most – they hate our talk and they hate the, the, what they consider to be very provocative joint exercises – between the U.S. US and South Korean forces and, to some extent, the Japanese forces. They would love us to stop that and lift the sanctions and do nothing about their nuclear uh, pursuit. We would love them to stop their nuclear pursuit, in which case we might be willing to do a lot of things. Neither side is wanting to yield because, because the thing that North Korea seems completely and totally attached to is to become a nuclear state. They look at what we did with Iran, which was on that path. We had sanctions against Iran that were doing a lot more damage than the sanctions against North Korea. And we cut a deal with Iran, which basically just suspended time for 10 or more years. Um, And it doesn't appear that the North Koreans would even be interested in that, although they might if we ever had a way to, to, to talk to them. But the fact of the matter is they've got the weapons now, uh, unlike Iran, and, and, and are unlikely to be willing to give them up. So we've got 20 minutes left, and there's a lot of us. Go ahead. 
Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say that to Alan's point, the, re, the most recent reporting indicates that Alan is that their primary objective is to be recognized as a nuclear power. They were going around requesting all these meetings with U.S. officials based on the premise, the undeniable premise that they are a nuclear power, and the U.S. is right. not going to capitulate right. to that yet. Well, obviously, we're going to be keeping an eye on that. We've got about 17 minutes left in the show, and there's a lot more I want to cover. We're going to kind of go lightning round right now. Alan Moore, I want to start with you. I uh, want to ask you about the increasing humanitarian crisis in Puerto Rico. Uh, they are literally cutting through to get to critical infrastructure and try and repair critical infrastructure. But according to sources I've talked to down in the governor's office in San Juan, they are months from getting anything anything resembling reality back on that island. Uh, number one, can we save Puerto Rico, particularly with the budgetary crisis being $73 billion in the hole? Can we save Puerto Rico? The other question I have for you is, should we save Puerto Rico? Well, there's 3.5 million American citizens living in Puerto Rico, so they we can't just – we can't do to them what, what we're sometimes – sometimes tempted to do, often tempted to do, particularly some Americans, of people in crisis elsewhere in the world. We say, you know, that's really sad. That's really sorry. Here's a little bit of help. It's not really our problem. We've got plenty of problems at home. We're not going to be able to help very much. These are American citizens. If, these, if we don't help the Puerto Ricans stabilize and rebuild, they will come to America, many of whom will start in Florida. And it's sad to say nobody in America wants hundreds of thousands of new desperate um, uh, immigrants, in effect, although they're all citizens. They're all citizens. So, they can move so, their <laughs> absolutely. But, they're, but, but they will be perceived as another immigrant flood because they're offshore down in the Caribbean. Yes, they're citizens. They have a legal right to come here. We can't prevent it. But that doesn't mean they will be welcomed, is, is my only point. So, so we can help them in place, or we can help them in the, the, the southeast part of America. I don't feel like we have any choice, at least in the near term, in the near term being the next six months, year, year and a half, two years. There are 10,000 federal employees in Puerto Rico and, and, and the U.S. Virgin Islands right now right. dealing with, with hurricane response, and there aren't nearly enough people. There aren't nearly enough supplies. We need ships full of supplies. But, they don't, but here's the question is, we don't have the money right now. We are literally looking down the barrel of probably the most catastrophic impact to our big economy as a result of natural disasters in the history of this country. Well, I, all, all I'm saying is just as, you know, there was, there was Harvey money that was famously made available, eight or $9 million. That was, drop in the bucket, it was, it was uh, even for Harvey, it was a drop in the bucket. Right. Yeah, understood. Everybody knows that it was just, you can't spend a hundred billion dollars in a week or a month. So you have to, there's a spend out rate. That, that in, in Texas, a spend-out rate in, uh, in Florida for Irma and a spend-out rate in the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and, and in some of the other hard-hit Caribbean islands where we're going to want to help. 
Um, it's going to be tens of billions of dollars coming, and there will be a fight over how much and whether there's any offsets or whether we just lay it on to, uh, uh, to, to, to the deficit. My point about Puerto Rico is just as in Florida, just as in Texas, we're going to need a bunch of federal money and we're going to need private insurers who will have responsibilities in many of these instances and an enormous amount of patients. The problem in Puerto Rico is the infrastructure is so devastated that uh, there's, there, you know, it's not like people can go from their, 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 their flooded house in Florida and drive five hours and stay with relatives. If you leave Puerto Rico, you may well never come back. Right. There's, a, there's, uh, a, there's, there's an additional problem. What's the problem, Admiral? The, the, the additional problem is that the Puerto Rican economy was already devastated. So unlike places like Texas and uh, other portions on the Gulf Coast, even, even Louisiana after Katrina, uh, there was still some amount of, um, uh, of industry that was – uh, native to the area that was able to refuel and revitalize or help refuel and revitalize the reconstruction effort. Puerto Rico was already in the dumps, and now it's it's you know insults been added to injury or injury's been added to insult. It's bad. I mean it's real bad. Right. And so I th- I think I think you know uh, you know the the the, the perceived uh, problem with with immigrants coming uh, coming uh, fellow Americans coming in as immigrants is true. But I think what's going to fuel that is that there was already some question is, why am I staying here? And now the question is, okay, so if I stay, what am I going to do? Because there's nothing here anyway. We're actually well, missing, we're, we're missing the bigger problem. I think it's interesting what's the bigger problem, the distinction of Puerto Rico not seeing, you know, of people perceiving Puerto Rican citizens or, you know, citizens of Puerto Rico as, immigrants when they're U.S. citizens, if, if this disaster had happened in Hawaii, no one would be thinking, oh, if the Hawaiians have to evacuate and come to America, it's going to be an influx of immigrants. So I, I think that's an interesting uh, fault line that we've found in sort of our national consciousness, which I think needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. But, you know, to Admiral Ken and Alan's point, the problem isn't just the problem isn't money. The problem is infrastructure right now. The Puerto Rican airport has been crippled. You know, a fraction of their ports are opened. We can't, there's money is no use unless we can really quickly mobilize supplies and personnel to get in there and to start fixing all the damage that has been done. Well, well and that's the catch. No, 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 but, but, but that's the catch. What, what Sharmila is pointing out is, and this is the difference from Florida or Texas or Louisiana or any of the other states that actually had a disaster, those states also have people to represent their constituents in Congress. Good point, Dan. Which which Puerto Rico merely has a delegate that does not get vote without a vote that counts in the House of Representatives. And outside of Allen, I don't think any of us can name who that person is who represents Puerto Rico in Congress. Her name is Jennifer Colon. I, 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 
Thank you. I wasn't going to rise to that challenge. I will say I was I was reminded here by a, by a message a moment ago that I should apologize for calling Puerto Ricans immigrants. I didn't call them immigrants. I said what I what I intended. Maybe I did. If I did, I do apologize because they're not. What I tried to do is say they are perceived. I think as Sharmila said, they are perceived by many Americans as immigrants. They will be perceived as 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 foreigners coming to our shore, United States They hold citizens. United States they passports. Have passports. Their driver's they licenses are effective in every state in the union. Which does not mean that the people of Florida, who would be the probably biggest recipient, are, are looking to have hundreds of thousands of new, uh, of new citizens moving to, uh, who, are, who are people in need coming to Florida. Let me, let me just jump in real quick. Here's the problem, particularly with the Puerto Rican problem. Or the, or the Puerto Rican issue right now is it, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. We cannot afford to have the drain of residents of the island leave that island because that's going to take away future labor pool, future thought leadership, all kinds of economic impacts. It's going to take away a valuable labor pool that's going to be needed in rebuilding that island. If they go, they go to places, I can tell you exactly where they're going to go. They're going to go to the Bronx in New York, which has a huge Puerto Rican population. They're going to go to Orlando. They're going to go to Tampa. They're going to go to uh, Atlanta. They're going to go to Houston and Dallas, where there are large numbers of Puerto Rican enclaves. The reality is, is it's not that we don't understand. It's not that we don't appreciate the fact that they need help, and if they have to leave the island, they're going to go to where their families are, and those are in the cities I just named. The the bigger surprise to me is the lack of understanding and the ignorance of many on the Hill. I've heard three members of Congress talk about Puerto Ricans as foreign country and talk not unlike what we've been talking here as, as immigrants. That to me, it's that perception. It's, that's a perception, but the, to them, it's a reality. Well, it, and we gotta change that. It's that perception that yeah, stands my would be the better choice. It, it complicates the, you know, the, the 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 politics of helping them financially. You know, they they've declared bankruptcy, and and prior to there's seventy three the, billion dollars in the hole. They've got seventy five pharmaceutical manufacturers who who generate about fifteen billion dollars in exports. It's the largest industry industry sector that but they pulled out. Puerto Rico. No, no, no. No, those that's those they're still there. It used to be much larger than that. And they have not gotten over. No, all I'm saying there are something like I mean I saw this just in the last couple of days something like 75 pharmaceutical companies that produce on the order of 14 or 15 billion dollars of exports and it used to be many times that yeah. and then there's tourism which is i think the second most important generator and that's blown to bits so so these are american citizens we have a duty to help them and well, the government has a responsibility let's call it what it is well fine we do, do. responsibility and, and- and if we if if we fail to then to help them where they are, then we will be helping them where they come to in America because they're citizens who will travel here legally with their U.S. passport. Sharmila, go ahead. And and to so so to to Alan and Admiral Ken's points, 
uh, after Hurricane Katrina, Texas and the other neighboring states, Louisiana, were so welcoming of the people who are fleeing the flooding and the devastation in New Orleans. Why should it be any different for the citizens of Puerto Rico or for Puerto Rico? Right. It shouldn't be, but it will be. Go ahead. Hablo Espanol would be the would, would be the biggest difference difference between the two. Not all Puerto Ricans are fluent in English, unfortunately, and that neither, will be a divisive issue depending uh, when they when people, people show up. There are people who live in various parts of the continental United States who are also not fluent in English. And who are no, no, I know, but, 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 but I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm simply saying on, that that's on, where it creates guys, guys, part guys, of the political guys, issues. Hold on. Dan, everybody, hold on here. we got five minutes left. Um, real quickly, I mean, this is obviously something that's going to go on for months. It's something that we're going to bring up again because it's, it's definitely something that the president's been criticized about, him being preoccupied with the NFL and not focusing on the Puerto Rican question. He's been over the top about Puerto Rico today since he's been criticized for that. And even then his comments were just way out in left field with no, with no, there was no continuity to what he was saying, but we're going to talk about that later. Hey, before we leave, we've got four minutes left. Shamachari, I want to ask you a question. How much did you choke? How much did you choke or spit out whatever fluid was in your mouth this morning when you heard <laughs> that the son-in-law of Donald Trump, when Jared Kushner, was using his private emails and corresponding with government officials? I think I, li- I saw that headline on my phone in the subway, and I literally, I literally screamed, are you kidding me? The people around yeah. me thought I was nuts. Are you still choking on the irony? The irony, the hypocrisy, and it's not just Jared Kushner. The reports have found Ivanka Trump, Ryan Priebus, uh, several other administration employees have been using private, private emails. This, I mean, the hypocrisy here just gives me heartburn and indigestion and every other stomach ailment I can imagine. Yes. Admiral Ken, three minutes left. I want to ask you, do you foresee any Republicans standing up and calling for prosecution of Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, or Rice Priebus for using their personalized emails, or are we going to see them call hearings? Uh, I, I am I am ashamed to say no. Uh, okay, fair enough. Just Actually, don't think there has been there. a Republican who's called for an investigation. There's several. Who it is right now? Explaining to do. Yeah, tr- no, Trey, Trey Gowdy looked ask ask, ask for yeah. records. Trey yeah. Gowdy. Trey Gowdy, really? Yeah. I'm shocked by that. I I am shocked with you. I am shocked by that. But hey, good on Trey Gowdy. I never thought it. Hey, uh, we got two minutes left. On behalf of uh, the Honorable Alan Moore, who's here in studio with me, uh, and then those joining us from various parts of the region. Admiral Ken Carradine there in Virginia, Dan Littner somewhere in the bowels of a building in D.C., and of course the always the always entertaining and the always welcome Sharmila uh, uh, Achari. Sharmila, thanks as always. You always have a seat here at the table here on Backroom Politics. Thank you guys. Thank you again for having me. Not a problem. We are going to be live again next week. 
we're going to talk to the National Press Club about our technical issues. We may be remote, but we're hopefully going to be back here live at the National Press Club here in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. You can follow us on our Twitter account, at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on our Backroom Politics Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Backroom Politics Radio. You can also uh, follow me, Justin Russell, on Twitter, First Congress Guy. On behalf of Alan Moore, Sharon Chari, Dan Littner, Admiral Ken Karen, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will see you next week. Have a great week, America. And by the way, always remember, whether you stand or kneel or sit, that's your choice. That's what we thought. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. Backroom Politics.